on the brink? Defying President Trump, North Korea test fires more missiles. We'll see what happens. Iran signals it will return to nuclear production. And the president follows through on a threat to escalate a trade war. I want to get along with China because I'm smart. Is the Trump doctrine helping or hurting the U.S.? And prosecutor power. The president expects to face Joe Biden on the 2020 debate stage, but another top candidate says she'll be the one debating President Trump. And she'll use her courtroom skills to make her case against him. I know how to fight, and I know how to win. My exclusive sit-down with California Senator Kamala Harris, next. Plus, constitutional crisis? Democrats widen their probes into the president and his associates. But in response to their subpoenas, the Trump administration says no. Trump is goading us to impeach him. What's next in the stalemate between two branches of government? Hello and happy Mother's Day. I'm Jake Tapper in Washington, where the State of Our Union is wondering how this is all going to play out. President Trump is in Washington this morning and he's facing standoffs at home and abroad. On the international stage, the president is confronting escalating crises in four global hotspots, Iran, North Korea, Venezuela and with China, after negotiators failed to reach a deal Friday to avert a potential trade war. Back at home, the president is up and tweeting about the Russia investigation already today after a week in which his standoff with Democrats in Congress seemed to reach a new level as the White House looks to block Democratic oversight at every turn. Both the Speaker of the House and the Chairman of the House Judiciary Committee are openly calling this a constitutional crisis. But the White House appears to be betting that stonewalling Congress will not hurt the president politically. All this as the president is clearly feeling the pressure on 2020. And this morning, we're bringing you a special exclusive interview with one of the top Democratic presidential candidates. We went to Oakland, California, and sat down with Senator Kamala Harris to talk about her White House run. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, Jerry Nadler, they say that we are in a constitutional crisis uh, because the Justice Department's not turning over the full unredacted Mueller report and the underlying materials. Mm -hmm. Do you agree? Are we in a constitutional crisis? I think we probably are. I mean, listen, a constitutional crisis is defined is generally when the, the, the system that we set up with the checks and balances when each of the independent co-equal branches of government fails to perform its duties. And I think that we are seeing a breakdown of responsibilities. We saw it last week in the bar hearing. We're seeing it in terms of a failure to comply with subpoenas. Um, you know, now being a member of the United States Congress in the Senate, I am seeing up close where the um, there is a failure to respect the the significance of Congress's duty to perform a role of oversight over the administration, over the agencies. I'm seeing a failure to appreciate the importance of testifying before Congress in a way that is straightforward and truthful. So I think, yes, I think it is fair to say that we are looking at a crisis, not only of confidence, but um, potentially a, a constitutional crisis. Yeah. President Trump, as you know, slapped higher tariffs on Chinese exports on Friday morning, mm-hmm. um, dialing up pressure for a, a trade deal with the Chinese. Yeah. Your leader, uh, Chuck Schumer, tweeted earlier this week saying, quote, hang tough on China, President Trump. Don't back down. Do you agree with Leader Schumer that President Trump's doing the right thing when it comes to the Chinese? I think that part of the failure of this administration on foreign policy as a general matter is that this um, president and this administration have failed to understand that we are stronger when we work with our allies on every issue, China included. China's an ally? 
No, meaning working with our allies to, to address China in terms of the threat that it, it presents to our economy, the, the, the threat it presents to American workers and American industries. But, we, but instead, this president seems to believe, and it has a preference for conducting trade policy, economic policy, foreign policy by tweet. And that's irresponsible. It is um, a display of, of, of a president who thinks that, I, I, apparently, that unilateral action is better than working with the friends to address issues that not only impact our country, but impact the globe. And I think it puts us in a weaker position. As a more broad manner, President Trump, on the campaign trail in 2015-16, and as president, says trade deals in this country by Democratic presidents and by Republican presidents have been too tilted towards helping corporations and helping Wall Street and too tilted against the middle class and the manufacturing sector. Do you disagree with that premise? I believe that there is no question that over many decades, the rules have been written in a way that have been to the exclusion of lifting up the middle class and working people in America and working families in America. And in fact, that's why I am proposing that one of the things that we do to address that is that we reform the tax code in a way that will give middle class working families uh, that are making less than $100,000 a year a $6,000 tax credit that they can receive it up to $500 a month. But on the subject of trade, it doesn't sound like you disagree with the president on his premise, on his general argument that the middle class keeps getting screwed by these trade deals and he's trying to renegotiate better deals. I believe that we have got to have policy that better protects American workers and American industries. I believe very strongly that we have to have policies that understand that as it relates to the issue of trade, as it relates to the issue of various countries, including China, which we just talked about, that we have to supply and equip the American worker with the skills and the resources that they need mm -hmm. to thrive, not only survive, but thrive. Trade has been uh, drawing some dividing lines in the democratic field. When it comes to NAFTA, for example, uh, Bernie Sanders, one of your opponents, attacked Joe Biden, another one of your opponents, last week, saying, quote, I helped lead the fight against NAFTA. Biden voted for NAFTA. Who was right on NAFTA, Biden or Sanders? Well, I'm not going to choose between the two of them, but well, I'll tell would you. Would you have voted for NAFTA? I would not have voted for NAFTA, and, uh, because I believe that we can do a better job to protect American workers. I also believe that we need to do a better job in terms of thinking about the priorities that should be more apparent now, perhaps, than they were then, which are issues like climate, the climate crisis, and what we need to do to build into these trade agreements. We saw another deadly school shooting uh, this week yeah. in Colorado. Mm -hmm. uh, Cory Booker has called for creating federal gun licenses, which would require mm -hmm. fingerprints, an interview, and a gun safety course. Opponents of this say it would uh, essentially create a way for the government to, to track gun owners. Would you support a federal gun license? I like the idea, but you know, Jake, I'm going to tell you on this issue of the need for gun safety laws, um, we're not at any loss for good ideas. People have been having good ideas for decades on this issue. What we're at a loss is for people in Congress to have the courage to do something. We, and, and you know, I'm going to tell you on this subject, we're not waiting for the, the, the worst tragedy because we've seen the worst of tragedies, including what just happened this week. And, 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 and seeing the heroism of a child who we now mourn his loss 
his parents' only child. We're not waiting for tragedies, and we are not waiting for good ideas. Universal background checks, check, really good idea. You might want to know if someone has been proven to be a danger to themselves or others before they can buy a lethal weapon. What we're waiting for is Congress to have the courage to act. And so let me tell you what I'm proposing. I'm proposing, one, that if by my 100th day in office when elected president of the United States, Mm -hmm. the United States Congress fails to put a, a bill on my desk to sign with all of the good ideas or any of the good ideas, then I am prepared to take executive action because that's what's needed. Executive action. Action. To do what? To do specifically for anyone who sells more than five guns a year, they will be required to perform background checks on the people they sell them to. And this will be the most comprehensive background check policy that has ever been had in our country thus far. Can that be done by executive order? Yes. Yes, it can. I am also prepared to say and to direct the ATF to remove and take away the licenses of gun dealers who fail to follow the law. And Jake, 90% of the guns that are associated with crime have been sold by 5% of the gun dealers. We need to take their licenses away. I think the last time I saw you was the town hall. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to ask you about something you said that night. You said on stage with me in January that when it comes to private insurance, quote, let's eliminate all of that, let's move on. Yes. Now, you later said we don't need to get rid of all private insurance. So, But let's clear that. Which is is it exactly? Well, we were together. Yes. And you'll remember and roll the tape, please. You can roll the tape. (laughs) Well, you support the Bernie Sanders bill, which essentially gets rid of insurance. I support Medicare for all, but I really do need to clear up what happened on that stage. It was in the context of saying, let's get rid of all the bureaucracy. Let's get all of the waste. Oh, not the insurance companies. No, that's not what I meant. I know it was interpreted that way. If you watch the tape, I think you'll see that there are obviously many interpretations of what I said. What I meant is let's get rid of the bureaucracy. As it relates but the bill to Medicare, gets rid of insurance. But, but no, no, no. It does not get rid of insurance. It does not get rid of insurance. And, and, and listen, and let me just tell you where I am. Let's okay. tell you where I am. All right. I support Medicare for all. It is my preferred um, As a policy. principle, you mean, not Bernie Sanders' bill. I support the bill. Okay. I support the bill. Well, because I su- the bill gets rid of private insurance for everything that it doesn't is, get rid for, of supplemental for, insurance. Right, for, for cosmetic surgery, but for all... So it doesn't get rid of all insurance. Okay, it doesn't get rid okay. of all insurance, right. but for all essential health care benefits. But, but why? Ask the question why. The question, if, the answer to that question, is because Medicare for all and the vision of what it will be includes an expansion of coverage. So Medicare for all will include vision. It'll include dental. It'll include hearing aids. There are a lot of members of unions, for example, who like their private insurance and the plans that have been negotiated on their behalf and don't want that replaced. Well, listen, let me just tell you something. I completely agree with those those members of organized labor who have negotiated for plans and have in in those negotiation processes, um, processes often given up what could have been higher wages in exchange for a higher coverage for health care. And we we have to address that. It's a legitimate concern which must be addressed. The bill also says, quote, every individual who is a resident of the United States is entitled to benefits for health care services under this act. Not every individual who's a citizen, but every individual who's a resident. Mm -hmm. So you support giving universal health care, Medicare for all, to people who are in this country illegally? Let me just be very clear about this. I am opposed to any policy that would deny in our country any human being from access to public safety, public education, or public health, period. 
Stay right there. We have more of our exclusive interview with Democratic presidential candidate Senator Kamala Harris, including why she says this. I'm going to win. And I fully intend to win. Welcome back to State of the Union. I'm Jake Tapper. We are back with more of my exclusive interview with presidential candidate Senator Kamala Harris and her response to questions some progressive voters are raising about her record. Let me ask you about your record as a prosecutor. This sure. is the truancy initiative. Uh-huh. Uh, is something that you've had to answer some questions about, yes. which threatened prosecution for parents of students who missed too much school. Mm-hmm. You told um, a story in a 2010 speech uh-huh. about a homeless single mother with three kids working two jobs you sent under your truancy initiative. Her children's attendance improved, and you dismissed uh, charges yep. that you had filed That's against right. her. Now, can you explain to people who are skeptical yes. why threatening her with jail time was the right way to handle that problem? Well, it was more about getting her the services that she needed that she didn't know was that she needed and didn't know was available. It was more about putting pressure on the school district to do its job. I learned that uh, over 80% of the prisoners in the United States are high school dropouts. I learned that a black man between the age of I think it's 20 and 25, if a high school dropout was two-thirds likely to be in jail, have been in jail or dead. And so looking at the issue, I realized that there is a very direct connection between the issue of truancy and who will end up in the criminal justice system. So the first thing we did is go to the school district and say, what are you doing to get these parents the support they need? to get their children to school every day. What are we doing as a community? And it is because we put those resources into this initiative and put the spotlight that I was able to bring to it, frankly, we were able to improve attendance by over 30%. Not one parent was sent to jail. Well, you pushed for a statewide law, right? A statewide truancy law, and people were thrown into jail under that law. Not by me. Not by you, but you supported the law. I supported the law that this is what I supported. And our initiative was that in the, and here's, we're going to get in the weeds, but give me the patience of time to explain it. When I was looking at the issue of truancy, I realized that when we define truancy, we defined it as three or four unexcused absences, you're truant. I was seeing kids that were missing up to 80 days of 180-day school year. So my point was, why isn't the education code recognizing that? What ended up happening is by changing the education code, it also, it, it by reference then was in the penal code. And then that was an unintended consequence. And if I could do it over again, I would have made sure that it would not have increased penalties or the ability to prosecute anywhere in the state to prosecute parents. Because that was never the intention. And it was never anything that I did. Do you think that... I mean, you hear this more than I do, but I hear from Democratic voters, progressives out there, they, th- they say, they learn a little bit, they like you, they hear about you, they like you, they learn more, and then they say, she's a cop. Hey, look. Um, and then look, where I come from, that's not pejorative, but in some communities it is. Well, I, listen, this is how I feel about it. I am acutely aware of the impact of the criminal justice system on communities, both in terms of what the criminal justice system can do to rightly make sure there is consequence and accountability when a woman is raped, when a child is molested, when one human being kills another human being. And I will never apologize for prosecuting people for those crimes. I am also acutely aware that we have a criminal justice system in America that is deeply flawed, has often been informed by bias, and is in need of severe reform, which is why my entire career, I have worked to do both. 
We're just 30 miles away from the Facebook headquarters. Yeah. Chris Hughes, a co-founder of Facebook, published an op-ed in the Times this week calling for the tech giant to be broken up because it's a, quote, leviathan that crowds out entrepreneurship and restricts our consumer choice. Do you think Facebook's a monopoly? Should it be broken up? I think that Facebook has experienced massive growth um, and has prioritized its growth over the best interest of its consumers, especially on the issue of privacy. Um, there is no question in my mind that there needs to be serious regulation and that that has not been happening. There needs to be more oversight. That has not been happening. Um, my, especially during my years as Attorney General of California, one of my greatest areas of focus on this issue has been on consumer privacy. They have not been adequately informing consumers about where they are relinquishing their privacy. So they haven't been a great corporate model, but does that mean... But it's not just they haven't been a great corporate model. Do you think they should be broken but, up is but, my question? Yeah, I think we have to seriously take a look at that. Yes. I mean, when you look at the issue... They're essentially a utility. Like, there are very few people that can actually get by and be involved in their communities or society or in, in, in whatever their profession without somehow, somewhere using Facebook. It's very difficult for people to be engaged in any level of commerce without. So we have to recognize it for what it is. It is essentially a utility that has gone unregulated. And as far as I'm concerned, that's got to stop. Anita Hill wrote in a new opinion piece this week that, quote, if the Senate Judiciary Committee, led then by Mr. Biden, had done its job, the cultural shift we saw in 2017 after Me Too might have began in 1991. I know Me Too has been an animating issue for you. We've talked about it before. Do you agree that Biden didn't do his job? And if he had done it properly, maybe we would have had this reckoning whenever, 25 years ago? I think there is no question that that committee did not do right by Anita Hill or any of the other women who were were prepared to come forward. He said it himself. And I agree with him. Let me ask you a question. I've been speaking to a lot of your supporters and a lot of your would-be supporters who like you, people Mm -hmm. who like you. And do you want to hear a criticism, a constructive criticism that they have offered? You don't really have a choice. You're in front of you. You have a camera in front of you. Yeah, right. The the whole nation is watching. (laughs) Um, but of course I do. They well, like the prosecution. These are Democrats. They like the prosecution you offer of President Trump. Mm-hmm. They don't know that you have the satisfactory answer for why you. Mm-hmm. Why should you be the nominee? Mm-hmm. Yes, we get it. Trump shouldn't be the president. Yeah. But why should Kamala Harris, Senator Kamala Harris, be the nominee? Right. Why should you be the nominee? Well, let's start with the fact that I love my country. I love my country. And we are better than this. But let's be more specific. We need on that stage someone who has a proven track record of leadership. And I say what I'm about to say not as a criticism of any of my colleagues and friends who are also running. But we need someone on that stage who has a proven track record of leadership. I have served as a leader in local government, in state government, and in federal government. And this has to be more than somebody who can just give a beautiful speech. It has to be somebody who knows how to lead. You've been critical of the pundits who have been talking about electability. Um, And maybe some people think it's a code word for we need a white man. I don't you haven't come out and said it that directly, but but some people think that way. Why are you more electable than the others. Why will you have a more a stronger likelihood of beating Donald Trump? As you know, when you go out there, the one thing Democrats want more than anything is somebody who will win. 
I'm going to win. And I fully intend to win. And I will tell you that the voters, in my experience, are smarter than a lot of folks give them credit for. The voters, and I know this in my experience, having run for the offices I've run for, when I was the first in every one of those positions, when there was no one like me who had done the job and people would say, oh, they're not ready for that. Oh, no one like her has done it before. Oh, it's not your time. Oh, it's going to be a lot of hard work. And I didn't listen. And as far as I'm concerned, my track record on this issue tells me the voters are smarter than hearing and listening to all that noise. What they want is they want somebody who has a genuine interest in representing them as opposed to self-interest. CNN polled potential Democratic voters about which candidate they want to hear more about. Their top answer was Senator Kamala Harris. Harris will open up about her family and her mom next. Welcome back to State of the Union. I'm Jake Tapper. More now from our exclusive interview with presidential candidate Senator Kamala Harris. We met the California senator in Oakland, where she was born. And given that today is Mother's Day, we asked her about the influence of her mother, who passed away in 2009. This Mother's Day weekend, when you're, when you're back in Oakland, you must think a lot about your mom and, yeah, and, uh, and miss her. I do a lot. A lot. How did she uh, inform how you, how you see the world, how you, how you live? Oh, my mother had the strongest influence on my life of anybody. And, um, you know, my mother was, um, she was all of five feet tall. But if you <laughs> ever met her, you would have thought she was seven feet tall. And um, she was the most loving and nurturing and tough. <laughs> all of that in one. Um, you know, um, she was someone who... You know, she had two goals in her life. She was a breast cancer researcher, and her goals in life were just two. They were very direct, to raise her two daughters and, and breast cancer. Now you are a mom, a stepmom. Yes, I am. What do they call you, Mama? Mamala. You wrote an essay about this, about, yes. you're about the step, your yes, stepchildren. I love those kids. Um, yeah, we decided that it was a collective decision that... Um, the word stepmother has been, you know, adapted by Disney and others. Right. <laughs> In a way that's not positive. necessarily a great word. Yeah. And, um, and so they call me Mamala. And um, we have, and so we'll be together um, for Mother's Day. And they are um, so spectacular. And they're just... You know, they, they're, they're now, Cole is now working, he graduated college, Ella's still in college, and, um, you know, when, during these moments of the campaign, um, it's just always wonderful to step out of the campaign and, and step back into real life, and the thing I enjoy to do most of anything is cook Sunday family dinner and just have everybody around. And you get along well with your husband's ex-wife? You... I do. We have a very modern family. <laughs> we joke that it's um, almost too functional. <laughs> In fact, Kirsten, who is my husband's ex-wife, but my friend, um, we joke that, you know, it, it might be a little bit more comfortable if it were slightly dysfunctional, but right. it's actually highly functional. In fact, um, for Thanksgiving dinner, she came to Thanksgiving dinner with her mother and my family, and there we were, one big old family and a That's very nice. long table, and it was great. 
And your campaign is something of a family affair, too. Your, yeah. your sister's the campaign manager? She is, well, she's the chair. The campaign she's chair? She's the chair of the campaign. So would there be a position for Maya in, yes. the, in the Harris administration? Um, we got to get elected first. I know, and, but it's, um, it's happened you know, before. She's actually volunteering on the campaign, mm-hmm. and um, I think that you got to first do what's right in front of you before you plan that kind of stuff. So... Let me ask you a question about. But I, I think, she, given how hard she's been working on the campaign, and is probably one of the most, um, one of the smartest people on the campaign, and certainly the most hardworking, um, I think she would probably want a break after the campaign. Oh, so, yeah. no, okay. <laughs> or maybe ambassador to the Bahamas or something like that. Something a little, a little bit more rest. Or Jamaica. I guess yeah, well, that, that would that, make more yeah, sense. Uh-huh. Um, let me just ask you about California because we're in your beautiful state yeah. right now. Isn't it gorgeous? Obviously, you're going to face some competition. We have uh, Joe Biden campaigning mm-hmm. here, going to fundraisers. Pete Buttigieg was just here, going mm-hmm. to fundraisers. They're on your turf. I mean, I know Congressman Swalwell is also running for president too, mm-hmm. but uh, from California. Mm-hmm. But uh, do you? I mean, are they interlopers, or, or, or is this state locked up for you? Do you think? Oh no, nothing's locked up for me, and I'm going to work hard to earn every vote everywhere. Um, it's a big state of 40 million people. I have been privileged to have been elected by the people of this state um, three times statewide for attorney general, re-election as attorney general, and the United States Senate is the third one. And I am competing for every vote just like I always have because as far as I'm concerned, you've got to earn the votes. What do former staffers of President Obama think about Vice President Joe Biden's 2020 run? Well... It's complicated. That's next. We cannot put our arms and embrace this North Korean dictator in the way that this president has done. This uh, unilateral approach to foreign policy that includes embracing a dictator and taking his word over the American intelligence community is not smart, and I believe is not in the best interest of our nation. It's more from our exclusive interview with Democratic presidential candidate Kamala Harris. There she is criticizing President Trump over North Korea and rising tensions. We'll put that section up online, but but let's discuss. Congressman uh, Waltz, uh, let me start with you. Uh, The president has put a lot of stock in his personal style and his personal relationship, for instance, with Kim Jong-un. This has been a rough week, the U.S. seizing North Korean cargo ship, uh, North Koreans, uh, Kim Jong-un firing a second missile test. Is it working? Well, I certainly supported the president in the summit. I think we needed to try something unconventional. I was in the White House in the past when years after years after years, the, you know, what we've done in the past has failed. That said, uh, I do think we need to draw a line in the sand going forward. The North Koreans need to come forward with full disclosure and a timeline for denuclearization, or we need to go back to maximum pressure. But the president needs to be able to come to the Congress. He needs to be able to go to the American people. At the end of the day, if we do have to go to a military option, which would be horrific, and say, I tried everything. I opened the door for diplomacy. I opened the door for economic progress from North Korea, and they simply didn't step through it. But at the end of the day, we also need to realize North Korean nuclear engineers and missile engineers are not on holiday right now. They are yeah. progressing that program. And at some point, we have to say we tried enough 
and go back to fully choking the regime economically. Governor? The problem is, is that there doesn't appear to be any consistency across the administration. Mm. You've got Bolton and Pompeo pressing for more sanctions on North Korea, and the president tweeting out, I'm with him, which means I'm with Kim Jong-un. You know, it's not working. So you have no consistency, nor do you have a long-term strategy. Now, I grant you, these are difficult issues, right? But it's true not just in North Korea. It's true in Venezuela. What's the long-term strategy beside regime change? And if you're not going to get regime change, what are you going to do? What's the long-term strategy in Iran? Regime, regime change or what? I mean, it just doesn't appear that this administration has a, a, a strategy beyond loud bluster. What do you, you were on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, I believe, were you not? Uh, I was. Yeah, so what, no, 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 I was on uh, Armed Services. Armed Services. Yeah. Well, what do you make of all this? Is there a Trump doctrine that you can understand? Uh, yeah, I think there is. I mean, you know, I think the president uh, in almost all of these cases has started out based on his campaign promise to try to reach out to people and do things differently and try to develop good relationships. But you have to give him credit. I mean, he walked away from the summit in North Korea when it was a bad deal. That's right. He's he sees this ship. He's saying maybe maybe this guy isn't the guy we can negotiate with. He's, he's not he, saying that, though. He did. He said he said it, to, he said it this week that that maybe he, he's not going to follow through with with these things. He's I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.